want to invite you to turn with me this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me there uh, as we together hear the word of the Lord. As we continue this series, make, make your mark and uh, consider what it means uh, to, to have the mark of the Lord uh, bring great renown uh, throughout the scriptures and throughout our lives. Uh, we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We'll read on through verse uh, verse 17, and uh, together we'll hear what God is up to in this space. Hear now the word of the Lord. There was a certain man of Raphathim, a Zaphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other was Paniah. Paniah uh, had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Panana. Penina, and to, her, to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. She used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah kept, uh, wept and would not eat, her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set before him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall not drink wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his, touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought that she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make, yourself a, uh, make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. This is the word of God for the people of God, so we together give thanks to Lord God Almighty. Would you give me uh, the privilege of bowing your heads as we continue in worship uh, through prayer. 
Gracious God, we come before you thankful for your holy word, thankful for the wisdom that's contained therein, wisdom that renowns from generation to generation, and we receive it this day. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see, open our ears, that we would hear, open our minds that we would come to know and understand your word, open our hearts that we would feel its power. Then by your grace, I ask, oh God, that you would open our hands, that we would offer grace to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Something I think uh, is so often a, a gift that we have in, uh, in movies is the building up of the drama to an emotional peak or high point. Right, like, like a director that knows how to take a movie and allow it to flow in such a way so that whenever you want to emote the, the greatest connection or feeling or emotion, you, you hit that point on target. If you miss that point, you're failing as a director. But if you hit that point, you know that, that, that something transformative is going to happen in the people that are receiving your art. Sometimes whenever we dig into the scriptures together, uh, I find that, that we don't have the ability to allow uh, the picture to be painted in such a way and for our hearts to, to engage in the early stages of the story in, in such an intimate way as to hit that, that peak emotion with the writer. And so I want to be sure that we understand the stage that is being set, the drama that is unfolding, so that when we arrive at this great emotional plead, cry, act of desperation, we can meet it effectively there. So what is the stage? We have a man, Elkanah, who has two wives. Uh, now, that might go ahead and like, like, I'm done listening to the story. There are two wives, so discount the whole thing. No wisdom from God here. Please bear with me just a little bit. Like, there is wisdom from God for us, from God for us here. Uh, uh, but, but culturally, here, before God is, has, has instituted for us uh, the greatest wisdom of all, uh, a marriage between, between man and woman, like, because like, like, uh, I don't know how they do it, to be honest. Like, <laughs> Like, brothers in Christ isn't one enough. Um, <laughs> don't, don't nod your heads. Don't, don't do that. Uh, I'm, I'm the only one that needs to get that, uh, that punishment today. But th th there is, there is this, this, this emphasis here on, on, on a difference between these two women and in how they handle uh, what life has for them. You see, uh, the two women, Hannah and Penina, God, I can't believe I mispronounced that earlier. Her name is Penina. So Hannah and Penina have, have one husband, Elkanah, and, and they both have extreme pain that they're enduring. We might not see that at first in the story uh, because uh, we, we only uh, uh, whisk through the pain of Penina. We only engage the pain of, of Hannah, but... Let, let's draw this distinction together between these two wives. Really, there's no competition when you think about the cultural implica implications of these, two, uh, of these two women's value to Elkanah. So one has no children, and the other has 
children. In fact, the other has lots of children. If you look at verse 4, and it says, uh, and it says that, that Elkanah gives Penina uh, a portion of the sacrifice, it says uh, he gives it to her and all her sons and all her daughters. Plural everything. So, when, so we don't know uh, from, from the scripture here how many children Penina has. She could have 12 children. We don't know. But we do know that she has multiple daughters and she has multiple sons. So from the very beginning, we have a very, a very clear picture that Penina would have so much more value for Elkanah over and above Hannah. But we have plenty of evidence that Elkanah loves Hannah. We know that from the very outset of the scripture, actually. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, I've, I've told some of you this before. I want you all to let it resonate because when you read scripture, you're gonna, you're gonna, it, like, it's going to spark for you when you read scripture this way. Uh, when scripture lists introductions of people or, or lists uh, classifications of people, you always culturally put the most important first. The less important is always last. That's how you list things. And, and, and so uh, uh, just an example of that, Paul has great lists throughout his letters to the early church. And a, a few times he lists wives and husbands so as to totally flip the cultural norm and be sure people understand how we are made one in Christ, right? So when we look at the listing here in verse 2 in 1 Samuel, uh, they're introducing these two characters for the very first time. And it says that he has two wives and the name of one is Hannah. And the name of the second is Penina. That makes no sense culturally because one has given children and the other has given none. But that is the first hint for us Brothers and sisters, for us to hear uh, the love that Elkanah has for Hannah. But it's not just in the listing. It continues on. It says that, uh, that he gives in verse 5, uh, he gives a portion to Penina, a portion to all of her sons, to all of her daughters. But then to Hannah, what does he give? A double portion. A double portion. Twice as much. Two times what? Penina and her kids get, she gets a sign of love. But, but it's not just a, a love uh, and a generosity. It's also a love of great concern. I want you to look at verse 8 with me. It says, uh, her husband, this is Hannah. So Hannah is, is, uh, is sad. She would, would not eat. She is weeping. And then you get to verse 8 and it says, Elkanah comes to her and he meets with her in the midst of her pain and he asks her, why do you eat? Uh, why, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? He, he wants to, to, her to know that he is meeting her in her time of pain. That, brothers and sisters, is a great sign of love. When someone is in the midst of pain, how do we meet with them? How do we encounter them? How do they know that they are loved? 
It starts with our very presence. It continues with our concern. And then finally, another way we know Elkanah's love for Hannah is is the very last question that's asked there in verse 8. You know, he says, why, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? He meets with her. He offers her concern. But then he, he also en- enlightens for us how much he loves her. He says, am I not more to you than ten sons? Another way to look at that is, uh, you're more to me than ten sons. I love you that much. I love you more than you can imagine. I love you more than the culture tells me I should. I love you more than, than, than what, what I, I, I should be expected to because you're barren. But, but, but in the midst of it, I'm going to meet you here and I'm going to show you and I'm going to speak to you that you could give me 10 sons and I would not love you more. You, you've given me zero sons and I could not love you more. My love for you continues in deep, profound, and rich ways. And someone is honking or their alarm is going. So I'll speak truth to that and, uh, and now I can go on. All right. Yeah. If, if you're new here, if I see a squirrel, I say squirrel. I'm sorry. Um, it's, I, I, I can't. I can't. So uh, everybody's looking. Whose car is it? Uh, it's off. Oh, Donna got it. Donna's told me before that her car alarm goes off if you step hard near it. So uh, watch out for her car in the parking lot. It will tell you you're nearby. Um, so we have uh, Hannah, a woman in deep distress and pain. We have Elkanah, who loves her dearly, no matter what. And now for the second wife, for the second character that uh, is so easy to beat up on. So Penina is, uh, is the second wife who has blessed her husband with many children, with multiple sons, with multiple daughters. And here she finds herself feeling alone, feeling unloved feeling a lack of appreciation or priority. Now, we might not hear that in the story because what we hear is that Penina uh, looks upon Hannah and provokes her. She lashes out at her. She makes fun of her. She bullies her. She says, why can't you have any children? Nanny, nanny, boo-boo, right? Like, like this is the posture that we see Penina having towards Hannah. But why would she have that posture? She's acting out of her own brokenness. She sees her husband loving Hannah more than she's loved. She's not acting out because she's an ugly, cold person. She's acting out because she's broken. And in her brokenness, she does not respond faithfully. Did you see that? She witnesses the double portion going to Hannah. She witnesses her husband consoling Hannah in her pain. She witnesses her husband's statement saying, Ten sons could not match the love I have for you. She knows that she is second in the heart of her husband. 
and so she's broken. A great example of why we have one wife and not two uh, or more. So, so when you put it in that light, two women, both broken, both in pain, you now have opposing witnesses of how you deal with that pain, of how you engage that brokenness. One lashes out to others out of their brokenness, and the other chooses to meet with God. You see, so Hannah, uh, Hannah is, is, is a part of an, a, a wonderfully faithful family. Elkanah and his entire family goes up to Shiloh uh, for festival every year to offer sacrifices and pray to the Lord. Now Shiloh is where the Ark of the Covenant is. Uh, it's where, uh, is where the, the people of God go to offer sacrifices to God. This is before Jerusalem, before the temple. This is still, uh, th- th- this is after, uh, after the wilderness experience and this is where the Ark of the Covenant rests. And so Elkanah is, is proven a faithful man. His family is living out in this faithful way by going to, to, to offer to the Lord. And here we have uh, the, the, the difference uh, in action between the two wives. And here's what Hannah does. Hannah prays to God. And, and I want you to, to hear all of the ways in which we can understand and connect with what Hannah's going through to clearly, uh, to clearly grasp the state of emotion and state of desperation she's in in her prayer. If you have your Bible still out, um, uh, in verse 11 it says, She meets with God, she makes a vow with God, and then it says, O Lord of hosts, if only... What does that if only mean? If only from the very beginning means that, that she is feeling abandoned. She's feeling like this is impossible, like this is insurmountable, like, like, nothing, like, like, like nothing that she's tried yet was able to make a difference here. And, and so she's encountering the impossible and now she's uh, reaching her wits end, the last stage. She says, if only in a state of of, 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 of desperation. And then it says, if you look on the misery of your servant, she is identifying in her very prayer the state of her heart that she is miserable. She's in misery. And then it continues on. Uh, it says, don't forget your servant. When she says, don't forget your servant, what does it mean she's feeling? Like she's been forgotten. It says, it says don't forget me. It means I'm, I feel like I've been forgotten. I need you to remember me. And then finally, uh, she gets to, to that kind of that, that, that last stage of desperation uh, in her relationship with God. And at the very uh, end, she barters with God. It says, if you do all these things, then I will set before you my son. I will dedicate him to you. Kind of pain, what kind of desperation, what kind of abandonment, what kind of uh, isolation and feeling of forgottenness and misery has to be wrapped up all in one in order to get to that stage that you're even willing to barter with God. 
barter with God in such a way as, as, as you'll say, I will, I will give my son to you. I will dedicate him to you. He will spend his life in service to you, which is going to, to, to constrain and, and limit even my contact with him. But that's where I am. This is one of the most emotional, desperate cries to the Lord in all of Scripture. She comes to the Lord in the midst of her pain and brokenness and meets with the Lord there in honesty and vulnerability and in pain. And because she does, that prayer has been recorded in Scripture so as to bear witness from generation to generation about what we are to do in the midst of our brokenness. These aren't things for us to handle on our own. These are things, uh, things in which that, that, that we are to give to God and meet with God in the midst of them. And, and we didn't read this far, but in verse 18, it shows that, that this prayer can be a turning point, that prayer can be a turning point. It says that, uh, that she met with her husband after she prayed this prayer, and at the end of verse 18, it says, and her countenance was sad no longer. Prayer as a turning point in one's life. I think that's interesting because I don't know about you, I can look back on my life and I can identify particular prayers that I prayed at different stages of my life and I can remember where I was and what it felt like and, and the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the movement and the space and the desperation and the emotion and the celebration. I, could, like, like I can mark my life in prayer. And most of you can as well if you go back and think about it. Think about those prayers that have been prayed that mark turning points or celebration or desperation and how you met with God there. I remember whenever I was uh, uh, very young in the ministry, uh, about 12 years ago, I was invited to preach at a youth gathering. And, and, and normally when you preach at a youth gathering, they invite you in for the whole thing so you could build relationships with the kids and you could see kind of the, the, the movement of the spirit over the course of the week, which I find very beneficial because then when you get to that, that culminating point uh, at the end of the week, you're able to really kind of like, like drill down and hammer it home. But they invited me in just for one night. And I was like, oh my goodness, I don't know what the Lord's been doing. I have no clue what's been going on. This is like the most difficult thing to try to do is to come in and, 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 and meet with these students there. But I did, and, and I remember as I was preaching, I could feel the Spirit moving, and I was in a space I'd never preached before with folks I've never met before. And at the end, you know, uh, you're, you're the last night of a youth retreat. What are you supposed to do? They're, they need to cry at the cross. Like that is the ultimate goal of every youth retreat on the last night is to create space for students to cry at the cross. And so we were going to do that. And, and I, get to, I get to the end of, of the message and I invite them to, to cry at the cross. I invite them to consider what it is to offer their lives to Christ and to, and to come forward and to, and, to, and to offer prayers to the Lord and to dedicate their lives to Christ. And, and, and if anybody wanted someone to pray with them, they could come up and they could just have their hands held open and, and someone will come and pray with them. I remember very specifically that, that during that altar call, there was a, a, a high school age girl that came up. And, and this girl came up, I'd never met her before. I just, 
I didn't even notice her whenever I was preaching, so there wasn't any eye contact or like, but she came up and she was weeping already. She came to the altar. She had her hands held open and I was the nearest to her. And so I approached her and I asked her her name because she was asking, inviting me to pray with her. She asked, I asked her her name and she said, my name is Caroline. And, uh, and I met with Caroline in that space. And I remember that prayer as, as specifically as I remember almost any prayer I've ever prayed because during that prayer, uh, uh, she had told me, my name is Caroline. I'm ready to give my life to Christ. I'm not worthy, but I'm ready. And so as I prayed, I was praying things specific to her life because the Spirit was present and guiding my lips and every specific thing that I prayed because the Spirit was telling me to pray it brought her into a deeper space of, of mourning and release and acceptance of grace. And you could just see her broken heart there in the prayer. And the Spirit move and mend it all back together. That was the first time I ever uh, realized the power that God has when we meet Him in prayer to offer us wisdom that is impossible. I could look at my life and that was a turning point for me. That was a turning point in my ministry. That was a turning point in my prayer life. I was, I, since then I've been able to to acknowledge that there are things that happen in prayer that I can't even understand, can't begin to understand. What are those marks of prayer in your life? And, and what is it to look back at those and to, and to identify what God has been doing, what God is up to, and how God is making a way in something new? Sometimes it is in those moments of desperation. We went to Israel uh, about 10 years ago, and uh, my buddy Daniel and his wife Jean uh, had been trying for, uh, for years to get pregnant, um, and they have, had not been able to get pregnant. And they didn't understand it, and they were lost and felt alone and felt uh, tremendous pain over it. And I knew about it, um, uh, but, but very few did. And we went uh, in Israel, there's uh, what's known as the Wailing Wall. Have any of you heard it? The Western Wall of the Temple. So the Southern Steps go up into the Temple, but the, the Wailing Wall is, is there on, on the Western side. And uh, faithful Jews and Christians go and offer prayers at the Wailing Wall every day. And there's a space for, for Jewish worship as well, uh, as well that's, that's underneath uh, this this archway just further north down the wall, but you go and, and and you could write prayers and you can and you could leave them in the wall and they're they're being prayed over and you could pray over them and I, I remember uh, stepping back and watching Daniel and Jean approach uh, the wall and um, knowing what they were praying even without them telling me what they were praying for. And they had written on their slip of paper that they were praying 
to be blessed with the child. And they put the slip of paper in the wall and they both leaned up against the wall as though the wall was the only thing that was going to keep them standing in the midst of their pain. And they prayed together a desperate prayer, a prayer of misery and brokenness and need and hungering and yearning. And I'm watching them pray and I'm watching them weep with one another. And there's an older woman, Jewish woman, that walks up to them uh, while they're praying and she lays her hands on them and later Daniel told me that she spoke to them and said the Lord hears your prayers and you will be blessed with a child and she walked away She hadn't heard their prayer. She didn't know what they were praying for. She responded to the Spirit of God. She met them in prayer. She left. Just about six weeks later, when we were back in the States, I was hanging out with Daniel, and he said, uh, we're pregnant with twins. Pregnant with twins. They have a mark of their journey of faith in prayer. All of you can mark your journey of faith in prayer as well. But I want to invite you to not let that, not allow that mark to be held in secret or in private. But I invite you to share that with others as a testimony of faith so that the world might see that mark and so that God might receive glory in it and through it. When you're going through the trials of life, meet with God in prayer.